0: This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Hello, and welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on December 30th, 2014. My name is Zach. And I'm Andy. This is episode number 86, where we are discussing the... The? No. Emmett Alston's 1980 holiday slasher film, New Year's Evil, released by Canon Films and starring Roz Kelly, Kip Niven, and Chris Wallace. Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis?
1: New Year's. E-V-I-L During a New Year's Eve celebration, punk rock and new wave show host Diane Sullivan, also known as Blaze, receives a phone call from a stranger who announces on live television that when New Year's strikes in each time zone, a quote-unquote naughty girl will be murdered, with Diane being the final victim. As the television crew takes various precautions, on the other side of America, a hospital nurse is found murdered. Who could be behind these murders, a crazed fan, a religious psychotic, or perhaps it's someone much closer to Diane than the police or the audience could have ever expected. So this is your first time seeing New Year's Evil, correct?
0: It is, but now that I've seen it, it feels like I've known this film my whole life.
1: I think I've watched this movie every year around this time for like the past like five years.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So you have a lot of affection for this.
1: Not really. <laughs> okay. It's just like the only New Year's Eve uh, horror film that I can think of.
0: <laughs> well, I know Terror Train also that's true. is set. Yeah, at, I um,
1: think, yeah, that's true.
0: And I did actually look into it because a question that I was thinking about as I was watching this was, I do find it odd that this is a holiday that is so underrepresented within slasher films because it it allows for... The more conventional traditions of, of slashers, the the casual sex, lots of drinking, debauchery. Right. It stages itself perfectly for a slasher film. So I looked into it, and there isn't so many slasher films, but uh, The Oracle, Ghost mm-hmm. Keeper, Bloody New Year, which is a British horror film that people seem to be pretty fond of. Okay. There's actually a Jess Franco movie, Faceless, that oh, apparently okay. set at New Year's Eve. And I but speaking of, of slasher films, I kind of wanted to start by sort of deconstructing this in terms of being classified as a, a quote, slasher film. Because as we've just mentioned, it's obviously derivative of the holiday-centered storylines. But what's different about this film, whereas, say, for instance, something like Halloween, even though in many regards Michael Myers is the protagonist of Halloween, that film does eventually shift its focus on the victim. This film structure is opposed to that completely because it is almost completely designed around the killer uh, who is evil or Jeff Winters, whatever alias he's using. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm curious if you see this as like without without question a part of the slasher subgenre. Yeah,
1: I definitely see it as part of the slasher subgenre. Especially the 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 sub sub genre of holiday themed slasher films, which were were very popular at the time. This came out in 1980, so right after uh, Halloween, and then there was other ones like Graduation Day, of course Friday the Thirteenth, uh, My Bloody Valentine, and so forth. So yeah, I definitely see this as part of that that group. Even though you're right, it does seem to focus more on um, um the killer himself rather than say um Blaze. Or well, it's even kind of surprising that um say the 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 punks at the show aren't being knocked off no the idea that it's that she's a punk rock hostess seems kind of secondary and almost seems to be put in to make it seem i don't know maybe hip or more in with the now even though the music isn't really represented represent represents uh punk rock very well but yeah i do see this as very much slasher i think it goes with like uh the, the body count idea and it really um again even though this is 1980 it's pretty early in the in the cycle but we do get a hospital slash like a short hospital slasher film in here uh we get a short like a dr- drive-in massacre type film in here i mean it's almost like a collection of uh short vignettes that would play out in later slasher films mm, yeah
0: i suppose the environments fall into the category I I just as I was watching this I didn't find that visually it was composed of iconography that functions necessarily in a way that typical slashers would Like at times the camera does foreground his sad excuse for a knife Uh, but he isn't really depicted as a voyeur there is never any use of subjective camera which doesn't necessarily define slashers but that would have been Something heavily prominent at the time that this would have been made. And really, like, the visual style, the lighting, which in most slasher films, you you have this contrast between the bright colors of the youthful characters set against the shadow of the killer. This film has a very flattened image. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many ways, the killer's just, he changes his appearance to fit whatever location he's entering. A- yeah. Apart from the, the Catholic priest getup, which I'm wholly confused as to why he dresses that way.
1: Yeah, well I mean, I guess he never really Yeah, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I don't know if he thinks dressed as a priest will get him into the hotel, but it's a no, punk no. rock show, so I, I feel like, I like a priest I like
1: when he dresses as a priest though. On on the passenger seat of his car he's got that book open and there's a picture of a priest. It's almost like he was like using that as like a reference. Like, mm-hmm. okay, this is how I should do it. There's something funny about that to me. Um, well, one thing about how this isn't like your traditional slasher film is that in a lot of the slasher films, the slasher himself is kind of mysterious. Mm-hmm. There's like an air of mystery about him. And this one, there really isn't. Even though we don't know he's Blaze's husband until the very end, we're not really that concerned with who he is. He. It almost feels like they're trying to do um, with that goofy, I don't know what that mask is that he wears at the beginning and the end.
0: Uh, The Stan Laurel mask?
1: Yeah, um, like it's almost like they're kind of giving him like, like an iconic look for those two scenes, but they drop it almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Just bring it up at the end for some reason. I don't really know why they bring it back.
0: Well, I don't know what Stan Laurel says about his psychological state. I was kind of confused as to why why Stan Laurel. Yeah. Well, especially yeah. at this time, why Stan Laurel? Why not a Jimmy Carter mask or a Nixon
1: mask or? I don't know. I mean, um. But how you were saying with um other things about how this doesn't feel like slasher. I think a lot of slasher films, especially the good ones, take a lot from Italian giallo films. Yes, yeah. And uh, this really doesn't at all. No. I really don't. And I think that might be one of the reasons why as well that um it doesn't feel like feel like it because it's not as stylish or they don't take a lot of the tropes that are used in those films.
0: Well, in many ways, I felt this was a very old-fashioned sort of throwback thriller. Mm-hmm. That had more in common with something like Psycho, or the tonality of like a movie like Body Double or something. the The difference is that Emmett Alston is he's not a technician like De Palma is, and he's not an innovative story or t- tell, storyteller like Hitchcock was. But I found it really similar to Psycho, not in obviously not in storytelling <laughs> merit, but what motivates this killer feeling repressed by mm-hmm. women. The fact yeah. that he only ever targets women. And when both evil and in the case of psycho Norman Bates are confronted by men, that struggle is far more difficult. Yeah. And I think Derek, their son, his contempt for his mother, for whatever reason, feels like it could have been inspired by Norman Bates's contempt for his mother.
1: So Norman Bates's mother wasn't proud of him for booking the pilot? For a new science fiction show. But is that what he's really upset about? (laughs) I think that that's part of it. I I think it's just adding on, you know, that's just another piece for him to be upset about.
0: Derek is one of the more fascinating components of the movie because... Well, that's only because
1: he puts that red nylon on his head. Yeah, but there's obviously
0: an Oedipus conflict going on, Mm -hmm. which... May or may not have been created by Diane herself, which is what Richard suggests in the elevator, which feels like a total curveball. I felt like that is the film making a moral statement about people who live the kind of lifestyle that she
1: we assume she does. Well, that's really not the only time that happens, because when she receives the first call and they call the police, the police kind of say it's her fault that it's happening.
0: The funniest thing about this movie is I feel like it is is—it's the goofiest manifestation of everything that the white Reagan male laid awake at night experiencing anxiety <laughs> attacks over. Punk well, rock, no, successful there's women.
1: No, there's no black so.
0: <laughs> Technology, sons loving their mothers, transcendental meditation, <laughs> marijuana, calling a cassette tape instant replay.
1: I understand why he said that instant replay.
0: <laughs> this is everything Reagan fought to defeat.
1: Well I also thought that um the Derek character not only had the like the Oedipus thing, but I thought there was like with him putting the the red nylon on his head, it did seem like something like cross dressing too <laughs> and just his portrayal of Derek is such a kind of weak crybaby almost. Yeah. That kind of gave it kind of like an effeminate, uh, stereotypical effeminate feel to it. And I would not know if that was deliberate, if that's, they're making some sort of statement about that as well.
0: Well, there's this brimming, unfulfilled desire in all of his scenes. Yeah. His physical appearance is very virginal.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: But the scenes with him alone in the hotel room, there's this demonstration that this intense desire he's feeling towards whatever it is that that's directed towards. It shows how quickly that can turn into violence in his case, which creates some kind of hereditary hereditary link between his father and him. The destroying of the bouquet felt like a almost a a she loves me, she loves me not situation, because of how slowly he does it. He's watching his mother dance on television around other men. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I question with all of that if he is in love with his mother, which. Is something that when Richard tells Diane that Derek has said that she lusts after other men or has tried to seduce him, the problem that I have with that is that there's no evidence of that previously happening in the film. Right. So it's either a last-minute attempt to kind of raise the stakes or Derek is lying, which I find more interesting because then it presents this whole idea that maybe Derek – manipulated this entire situation between imposing his parents against each other if he is in love with his mother and he wants to get rid of his father. But then, the problem I have with that is if he's so jealous that he can't have his mother in some kind of sexual relationship, I don't understand why he's so upset when his father dies at the end.
1: And when we can also only assume that he kills his mother at the end because he dons the mask.
0: Yes, so I guess he just hates his parents.
1: Well, I'm assuming what happened was that that's what everything he was hoping for. And then when he heard that dad was going to take him to the Rose Bowl game, <laughs> he's like, whoa, wait a minute now.
0: Who was playing in 1980 at the Rose Bowl game? Actually, maybe?
1: this movie came out in December 1980, so it would have been in January 81. Mm-hmm. Washington and Michigan. They seem like total West Coasters, so I'm assuming that they were cheering for the Pac-10 team. Yes. I hate to say it, they lost. Michigan won.
0: But the other thing I had thought about with Derek is—is is he aware of
1: what his father is doing in any way? I think he does. Well, I mean, his dad did say that they planned it.
0: Yeah, like he keeps mentioning a surprise to Diane. Yeah.
1: But he's also calling Palm Springs the entire time. Yes. At least that's what we can—that's what we're assuming. Maybe he's just making a, a phone call to someone. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I
0: wondered if the surprise was him killing her well the, well, the
1: dad knew about the surprise, yes, so which was Stan to... Laurel, well, yeah, yes,
0: I got you this Laurel and Hardy cassette collection,
1: exactly, instant replay, their best bits, sons of the desert
0: <laughs> uh, but the the most the biggest twist was learning that Richard kills Yvonne at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Which, I have to say, I spent this whole movie utterly confused regarding the time zone situation. Yeah. I thought the concept was he was killing people at midnight in each
1: region. Yeah, no, he was...
0: So the whole movie, I'm like, how the hell... That'd be impossible. Well, that's the thing, though. When the movie starts, you don't know what evil evil is capable of like for instance with halloween michael myers there's a supernatural element to michael right. myers so if this film's new year's evil it's coming out in 1980 that's 2 years after halloween i'm kind of under the assumption that maybe evil is acting as a supernatural force as well and that he's able to somehow travel through these these time zones and commit these murders
1: if you place it with the other slasher films, early slasher films, Friday the 13th, Graduation Day, uh and some of these other ones there is no supernatural element to these yet. Mhm. I mean, the first Halloween has an element of the supernatural in it, but I think it really comes to comes really in the second one, and the second uh Friday the 13th is where we really get the elements of supernatural coming into the slasher genre, I feel. Mhm.
0: Yeah, but I didn't clue into the fact that oh he's killing people in california, california. until the end of the movie <laughs> because I the whole time i'm thinking he kills the two women in the dumpster and then he calls and he says you'll find them on la brea i'm like La brea is in california that's not in colorado or wherever brea, he's suppo- brea, supposed
1: colorado. to be you would have been in chicago at that point well i like with that one though with that kill i have to say they did uh Olsen did a good job foreshadowing it because the song that the punk rockers were playing before that was Dumb Blondes.
0: This is totally unrelated to the movie, but Luisa Mortez, who plays the woman that he initially picks up... Yeah. Did you know she's actually one of the the 14 women who's accused Bill Cosby of sexual assault?
1: Oh, no I did not. I'm looking at it right now. Mm-hmm.
0: She claims that he assaulted her on The Tonight Show in, uh some point in the 70s. But well, she
1: was... Uh, while she was promoting New Year's Evil.
0: <laughs> well, I think this was this was before New Year's Evil.
1: It was like, "I saw you in New Year's Evil."
0: Because I kind of recognized her, and then I realized she's in Death Race yeah, I mean, Two Thousand. She's, she's been stuff, yeah. in several movies, so. Uh, but I thought that was kind of interesting. What do you think of Emmett Alston's direction?
1: Well, to be honest with you, I thought nothing of it. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of—I don't think he does anything.
0: It's pretty poor staging, and there's yeah. a lot of inconsistencies for instance the the scene where he the girl escapes out of the car and evil goes after chasing her, which I want to get to because there's a whole thing happening this minute that I don't understand, but why are there two drunks covered in confetti walking around an empty park together?
1: Well I swear later when he goes to the the hotel where they're doing the show, those drunks are outside again.
0: Well, I even thought they reappropriated some of the punk extras from inside back into the outside. I
1: think they did. I mean, no, this movie is really bad. <laughs> and then the
0: the most egregious thing is when he strung Diane up to the elevator. Why does he let people get inside the elevator? Why are there two people in that elevator? That that means that he exciting. let it stop and people board it <laughs>
1: <laughs> to make it more exciting. Duh.
0: That would jeopardize what everything that he's attempting to do at this moment. So it doesn't make any sense why there are two people hanging out Some, in that elevator.
1: Sometimes you just have to let an elevator work. That's how he feels.
0: And do elevators... Can you manipulate elevators that easily just with a screwdriver, turning it in circles and jamming wait, wait,
1: wait, wait, wait. in it? At that time in 1980, yes, but after this movie came out, the elevator...
0: Reagan saw this, and he said... Yeah, and gotta... he was like, we've
1: got it. We, He's like, I like deregulating things, but sometimes <laughs> you need regulations. I will say Emmett Austin had a directing career of 10 years, 1980 mm-hmm. to 1990. He began with New Year's Evil, and he ended with Three Little Ninjas and The Lost Treasure. Some say that's his uh, his Citizen game.
0: Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think Roz Kelly was cast... Budget?
1: <laughs> that's a good question. Well, you know, they wanted to go. Okay, they were thinking, like, punk rock. What do all punk rock kids love? How about middle aged moms? And so they were like, okay, middle aged moms, that's what we want. And they were like, okay, who's the coolest middle aged mom you can think of? And someone said, Pinky Tuscadero. And so that's why I think she was cast.
0: She's odd casting.
1: I mean, <laughs> you, you don't say.
0: Apart from her performance just being not strong she's odd casting because that role seems ripe for great stunt casting it would have to be a different movie but i was watching this and i'm thinking why why isn't debbie harry that character why isn't like lydia lydia lunch that character or Susie sue or patty smith that would have been crazy patty Can you smith, imagine patty smith in this oh movie? that would have been so good
1: um they couldn't force debbie harry i'm sure
0: Well, she, she, at this time, though, this was when her film career was kicking off, and she was doing a lot of independent stuff, I think. Uh, She probably would have looked at this and realized how it just not a slight understanding of that movement at all.
1: Well, no, not at
0: all. But she's more of a new wave figure, uh, which I think this movie kind of dabbles in more so than strict punk. Yeah, I mean... What I will say about Roz Kelly, in her defense... She's constantly inventing things. She's she's trying these new physical tics, vocal cadences, because I, I do feel like I could get a strong sense from how she's framed, how that staging in her scenes work, that she's not being directed. And I think that's an example of something that you find in a lot of these these modest-budgeted thrillers from this period, or slashers from this period, where... It was clear to me that Emma Alston was only interested in making half of this movie. And that's the half with the killer. And the other half with Diane and exposition is just being directed because it's arbitrary. Mm -hmm. There's no consistency in her characterization. Her behavior is so erratic. The way she treats the initial phone call from evil as a real threat after she's hung up which when she's on the phone is a joke to her screaming for police
1: mm-hmm.
0: is such a, a
1: leap logically. One of my favorite things about this film though, is talking about the police is uh Chris Wallace who plays the Lieutenant. His portrayal of a police officer is essentially out of a fifties, low budget science fiction film. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the entire police portrayal is like they are existing in a different time period.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, Golan Goldus, canon, had to have just wanted to make a holiday-themed slasher film. This was the one holiday that hasn't been touched yet. And they just went at it, you know, with very little thought about anything else.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think perhaps that, that lack of understanding of how a, a slasher film historically functions or not being concerned with the tropes and cliches of the genre, how you how the language works they actually end up making not a better film but a more interesting movie to look at in that way Mm -hmm. now this was this their only real foray into horror
1: well you know like i
0: think um 10 to
1: midnight the oh uh Uh uh-huh i actually think that's a better slasher movie and i don't think that's what it necessarily is but i definitely think that feels more like a slasher film than this does so in October 81, I'm looking, they released Hospital Massacre, also known as X-Ray, which I haven't seen, but has Barbie Benton in it, and I know a lot of people kind of, you know, think it's fun. I love uh horror uh, hospital films.
0: I read somewhere, I think Hospital Massacre was originally conceived as a sequel to this film. Oh, really? mm mm-hmm.
1: Huh, that's interesting. I did not know that. Like I say, I think 10 to Midnight feels, I think it feels like a slasher film. Have you ever seen 10 to, Ten to Midnight? No. Oh, there's a great scene. The killer, they arrest him at one point, and they have to let him go. Bronson ransacks his apartment, and he finds all these sex toys, and they're interrogating him. And Bronson pulled out. It's a drill, okay? It's a drill. <laughs> but on the end, it's like, I don't know what it is. It's like a cup or something like that, like a latex cup. And he turns it on, and it's like, hey, like going around and crazy. And he goes, what's this? What's this for? And the guy's like, oh, I don't know. And he goes, it's for kicking off, isn't it? <laughs> It's, like, one of the best scenes in one of those movies.
0: I wish the killer would have pulled out a picture of Chuck Bronson in a, in a dress broken in the coal mines.
1: And then, you know, some say Love Streams is one of the best slasher films ever made.
0: The Cassavetes film?
1: Yeah, I was making it. Oh, okay. And then once we get into, like, the second part of the 80s, we're getting... These aren't slasher films, but they're horrors that they did. Company of Wolves, Life Force... Tex Chainsaw Massacre 2. So yeah, it's something they didn't really get into. I, and I would say it's probably because of New Year's Eve and Ho- Hospital Massacre. I kind of wonder how, how well those did for him.
0: So let's talk about the depiction of, of punk rock. The movie sets itself up as that being a prominent element of the story, and then that kind of gets abandoned pretty quickly after the opening credits. But yeah. I, I think it's interesting that uh, this film probably was shot in either 78 or 79. Mm-hmm. And it's it's shot in California, which punk was really, Oh yeah,
1: Dead Kennedys, Black leg,
0: yeah, uh, in full Fols- of the Germs, the Dickies, yeah, and then by 1979, hardcore punk had really emerged in California. So, what I find interesting is that this film doesn't even attempt to explore that in any way.
1: What this always reminds me of, the, 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 the bands in this movie, is, uh, you know the goofy, like, horror band in Phantom of the Paradise?
0: Yeah, I haven't seen the film, but I know what you're talking about. Okay,
1: that's what these groups always remind me of, is that. And I love Phantom of the Paradise, but it it just seems like um, De Palma is so clueless to rock and roll
0: music. Yeah.
1: And, uh, but that's what they remind me of. It's like someone watched that movie and goes, okay, this is what rock and roll bands look like because I can't think of any actual rock and roll punk rock bands or anything that look like this.
0: Well, you think of like a a band like black flag, which was at its height at this point, circle jerks, minute men. I don't even understand how, when you're doing just principal research for this film,
1: well, there's your problem.
0: There wasn't any. Yeah. Even, even the conceit of a call-in show is totally contrary to the philosophy of that. Oh yeah, I know.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but the but the strangest thing about this film is that it it doesn't really have, it labels itself as punk, but the musical identity is there isn't any. It's rock, it's blues, it's disco, new wave. There's like a boy band thing going on at some point.
1: Well, I actually think the film would have worked better, and uh, I don't know, it may have said something. Had uh, they been doing this kind of like punk New Year's Eve call-in show. But instead of having the audience of actual punks, they went out of their way to show that there were no punks, like real, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. real punks there, and that it's all just phony, mm-hmm. and that they're all posers. I think that may have said something maybe about music industry or fads or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. the char- Blaze's character, anything like that, other than trying to actually make it seem like this is the real deal.
0: Well, I, I guess now that you're saying this, one thing I am thinking about that I don't know that the movie intentionally sets out to do, but with Ros Kelly's character, juxtaposing her stage presence with her presence behind the stage in terms of really overcompensating on stage as like a tough anti authority figure and then backstage, totally a cog in the machine. Yeah. But I, I guess I just, while watching the film, I you know, why use punk rock at all? Like, this, the film's story doesn't really require it. It has no relationship or bearing on Richard. And it's strange that for a film that uses punk rock or uses this, this setting of a call-in show where music is being played, it doesn't ever use that music to create any tension within a scene. It, instead, oh, yeah, I mean- it's very con- conventional percussion, piano. Yeah. To suggest the presence of, of the killer.
1: I mean, I think you could have like maybe heightened some of the maybe some of like the cathartic thrill of the murders that you used, say, mm-hmm. like like Black Flag or something.
0: Well think about how films use heavy metal horror films have used heavy metal where that it well, yeah. emphasizes the reaction of terror.
1: I I mean again, where I said Golden Gold was probably just wanted to do a holiday themed slasher. So um kind of like Identified with New Year's Eve is like Dick Clark's Rockin' New Years. Mm-hmm. So they want to obviously put that into it. Someone got that idea. Oh, we can do something with that.
0: But funny enough, they never even suggest the ball drop.
1: No, I mean, yeah, no. They probably couldn't like afford it or anything. Which would have been better? Like somehow killing Roz with a dropping ball would have been <laughs> better than the within the elevator. You know.
0: The only thing that it does do in relationship to New Year's is it does show how consumed we are by media. On a holiday like that, yeah. All these communities being surrounded by televisions or radio.
1: Well, I think uh, New Year's Eve is probably the the holiday where we're most consumed by the media. Mm-hmm. Probably because there is it's not a real holiday with anything behind it. Why does he quote Hamlet? He couldn't sleep.
0: That specific line, you know, is convincing himself that suicide is the correct course of action, which. The whole time I'm sitting there, if these police officers would have taken one English class and paid attention, they would have known what he was going to do and stopped him beforehand.
1: (laughs) Well, Lieutenant Ed Clayton doesn't have time for that.
0: That's the wackos read Hamlet. (laughs)
1: Lieutenant Ed Clayton does. He reads the Tempest. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I like Ariel.
0: The last thing I wanted to mention was... uh, how this is a wholly misogynistic <laughs> film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Richard's motivations for killing is that his whole life he's been repressed by women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially in this case because his wife is, su- is successful and he's become financially dependent, dependent on her. On her. The, the thing that I... This is where the time zone thing becomes confusing because I don't understand how these particular women that he chooses to murder directly serve his motivations, other than that they are women.
1: Yeah, they just seem to be so randomly selected, but he obviously planned all of them out because he had the costumes to go with each one.
0: It's mentioned that he was once stayed at that sanitarium as a patient.
1: He used to frequent that bar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know where his third spot would have been because that's when he had the problems with the bikers.
0: Well, wouldn't he have had to have... A fourth killing as well?
1: Yeah, she would have been the fourth killing.
0: So who would have been the third killing?
1: Well, I don't know. He had that run with the biker, so...
0: Oh, yeah. So maybe the so girl in the car was... that es- escapes? Yeah,
1: Terry Copley.
0: Uh-huh. Playboy Centerfold, right?
1: Right, yeah. Why well, I knew her name. Um, his priest costume would have gone with his third killing. What, well, is he going to kill a nun? <laughs> I guess he would have killed someone at a church, maybe? Or a homeless shelter? Yeah. yeah I don't know.
0: And and the killing of y- Yvonne, I mean, it's revealed why he does it, but it feels wholly inappropriate given his established scheme.
1: Well, he probably needed it. They they probably wanted to kill, like, every, you know, 30 minutes. hmm And so you just had to have the first one to kind of set it off, you know?
0: Yeah, and I w- would also say that um, the misogyny that's present isn't actually helped by— Diane's character, because she is depicted as such an entitled, selfish, narcissistic Yeah, she really person. is,
1: because like when Derek says, I've been cast in Spaceship America, my favorite show, she completely blows him off.
0: Well, even how she just treats people, she talks down to everyone, and that becomes really conflicting, because then it seems like we're supposed to empathize with Richard more than her.
1: Which, you, you by you all accounts, to... you
0: kind of do i feel like even if you think what he's doing is gross you've spent so much more time with him that by the end you want to see him kill her <laughs> maybe that says more about me than it does anything else but
1: when he's like talking to her and telling her all the, the reasons why he did all these things and he was like did you ever know well when you know, like about when kip got not a kip i'm sorry that's his real name when uh Derek got his part <laughs> in spaceship america what
0: the fuck did that have to do with anything? I didn't, he didn't understand.
1: Even, he didn't even use your name.
0: They didn't know you was Blaze's little boy.
1: <laughs> that
0: comes after all of this being emasculated by women thing, as if this is the biggest reason why I'm doing it.
1: That's what I'm going to do tomorrow. To celebrate, is take my boy to the <laughs> roast ball game. Kip Niven. You know, I think it's pretty interesting. He's been married three times Linda Lavin they married to a divorce. his other two wives though susan niven nineteen sixty eight to november nineteen eighty one they were married to her death and his most recent wife. they were married till august twenty twenty twelve to her death. Mm. I think he's living new year's evil
0: an 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 interesting note that comes up when the psychologist appears. Uh, he mentions that the killer has been mutilating, mutilating the breasts of the victims. Why did we not? <laughs> doesn't that, that seem like an important thing that we should know by that point in the film? I don't need to
1: see it explicitly, but... Er, Emmett Alston likes to keep kind of like a, an open, creative atmosphere for his actors. Yes. And that was just Im- improvised. Well,
0: you can tell by his staging. He shoots everything in a wide, so they have freedom mm-hmm. to move around
1: yeah he even the if they don't,
0: was... they stand there like cornstalks, but you know
1: the <laughs> the guy playing the psychologist thought that oh that seems like something that a a killer would do.
0: He's so sweaty <laughs> and just arrogant. I hate psychologists. We
1: you bothered with Richard's obviously fake mustache in his scene where he kills the two blondes uh, well, absolutely, I was bothered by it. that bugged me. It because was so how did unconvincing, yeah, I know how did they not know that that was fake?
0: I've never spent any time in. Disco culture. So maybe that was just a common thing. Maybe people wore fake mustaches. It was just an accepted...
1: I mean, it would have been more realistic if he wore grease paint, like Groucho Marx. <laughs> That's a He was like, I avoid.
0: I also don't understand, in the case of Evil, he seduces these women pretty easily.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, look
0: at him. I mean... But I don't see how that's satisfying the gender war that he's raging, waging. Why not, if you're feeling repressed by women, why not then attack women in positions of power? Like a politician or a CEO, somebody that actually imposes some kind of threat to what he is clearly afraid of. And that's women that have more control than men.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, especially the the women at the bar. I mean, they're Uh really nothing, you know? There's nothing specific
0: about why he chooses who he chooses. The nurse is the the closest thing apart from Diane being his wife and wanting to kill Diane. But I felt like if he wanted to make a larger statement, you would go after people that had more uh, credibility publicly or whatever.
1: This movie leaves more questions unanswered you know which i think is why people love the movie so much Mm -hmm. thoughts on the ending with the sun taking the mask
0: yeah is it anything more than just like a paradox
1: (laughs) it's really nothing more than just uh kind of going in that same uh thing you know like I, i you know set up for a sequel maybe yeah i mean all the other slasher films have done it and you know this is really i think predating the sequels so I think this isn't even, the idea of a sequel hasn't even came into play yet. I just think the other film, other films have done this, so...
0: What year is My Bloody Valentine? Is that 84, is it?
1: Oh, I can't be that late. Let me look.
0: Because My Bloody Valentine is an interesting movie, because that actually seems like a film that is striving by the end...
1: 1981.
0: Okay, so a year later. Because that, I would say, is uh, that is a slasher film that ends in a way that wants to be a franchise, Mm -hmm. which is different than, say, Halloween or Friday the 13th.
1: I mean, they both had the uh, fake-out endings, but it doesn't feel like—I don't think in either one of those it felt like, oh, we're coming back for a sequel, because I highly doubt that anyone would have thought there would have been a sequel to Halloween, for instance, while they were making it.
0: I almost felt after seeing the ending that perhaps the scenes with him in the hotel room came after— They decided to end the film the way that they did as a way to to provide some validity to the ending in a way. Because really the scenes with Derek, they're not really tangentially related plot-wise to what's happening. So they feel like they could have easily been inserted. Apart from that, the only other thing I really appreciated was the David Lynch cameo. (laughs) Which comes from the girl in the car when she's talking about Transcendental Meditation, which is all David Lynch ever does anymore, is talk about TM.
1: I thought you were talking about trademarking.
0: <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> I love trademarking. That's
0: one of my favorite scenes in the film. Oh, you It has to do
1: with, it, it, it's coming off the scene. It's when the other woman goes in to buy the most expensive bottle of champagne she can find, and she buys like a $6 bottle. But my favorite part is when the guy that's working at the liquor store says, Here's your change back. Thank you. (laughs) And he just cuts the shot of her. She doesn't say a word. She just she doesn't
0: say a word to anybody throughout the whole film.
1: (laughs) She just nods her head.
0: She doesn't even, like, smile. There's there's no expression at all. It's like she thinks she's in a Brisson film or something.
1: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) She just nods her head, too.
0: But the guy in the the, uh, liquor store... He's so sad when he says why it. Don't to he her. Say, he he so says I don't he said the way he said He looks so upset. I know. When he
1: says thank you it almost seems like something's going to happen. <laughs> like he knows.
0: He knows what's in what's waiting for her in the dumpster.
1: Which is another yeah. thing. Why did he have to climb into the dumpster? Why did he I have to go to,
0: to such extravagant lengths? Like how
1: did he know that she was going to go to the dumpster?
0: And why kill her? It's after midnight. There's, there's no longer a reason to kill her, other than she could be ident- identify him, I guess. But he was wearing that mustache. Nobody would be able to
1: now, discern now, him from
0: without the mustache. Obviously,
1: yeah, obviously. The cat, did he put the cat in the dumpster later for the cops to find, or was the cat just always in there? He put it in there. That's what I was kind of curious about. I mean, did he put it in there, and if so, why?
0: <laughs> so how many jive turkeys are you going to give New Year's Eve? I just, two. I'll give it two as well.
1: It's funny, though. It's not a good movie. It is a movie that I have fun watching, though. Mm hmm And, uh, like I said, I do watch it a lot.
0: Now that I'm thinking about the Stan Laurel mask, it should have been a Dick Clark mask.
1: Oh, that would have been better.
0: Or he should have just, like, taped a picture of Diane to his face.
1: (laughs) Here's Made in Japan with
0: Banzai! Banzai! Yeah. Oh, and then her little gesture after with That's just... <laughs> <laughs> that was
1: too much for you. Yeah,
0: okay. How long it lingers on her afterwards, where she just kind of actually almost breaks the fourth wall and looks into the camera and smiles at you. It's almost bordering on being her Zog-ian, you know.
1: <laughs> well, this whole movie is, if you ask me. The ending of the movie... After they had the thing in the ambulance at the end, they should have had a a chicken dancing on a hot on a hot plate that's what Emmett wanted, but Golan and Golbus told him to cut it out
0: well a dancing punk rock chicken In <laughs> yeah, leather clad up. and everything yeah. that would have been right different. right right yeah, yeah or just the cop that stands by the door mm mm-hmm. Their elevator conversation is strange too. (laughs) Got any kids? Two sets of twins. And then what does she say to him? No time. She say no time for TV. Is that what she says? And he says nope. No
1: time for TV is what he says to him. (laughs) That scene was completely unscripted. And it just let the cameras roll. Well, when you've project. got the
0: pedigree of Roz Kelly and her improvisational <laughs> skills, you, you
1: know. can do that.
0: Andy, what are we discussing next episode?
1: Next episode, if you can believe this, I'm not discussing it, you're discussing it. Mm-hmm. We'll be discussing Peter Jackson's final installment in the Hobbit trilogy, The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five, Ar- Five Armies, starring Martin Freeman, Luke Evans, Ian McKellen, and Evangeline Lilly.
0: You can hear Andy on the Stephen and Andy Me Batman podcast and follow him on Letterboxd, where I can be found as well. Filmjive can be reached at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. Please send all your thoughts and feedback to filmjive at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Filmjive podcast. Please tune in next episode and
1: Happy New Year.